This program is a production of the Reformed Forum, an organization devoted to producing and distributing Reformed theological content for a connected age. Online at reformedforum.org. This is East of Eden, a program devoted to the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. Welcome to East of Eden, the biblical and systematic theology of Jonathan Edwards. We are so thankful to have you tuning in again. I'm your host, Nick Batzig, and we are here with our regular panelist, Dave Filson. Dave is a uh, teaching pastor at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. Dave, it's great to have you on the show today. Thanks. It's great to be here. We are also joined uh, by... Jeffrey C. Waddington, who, as many of our listeners will know, is teacher of the congregation at Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey. He is also the stated supply at Knox OPC in Lansdowne, PA, and he is helping with the Red Bank uh, Reform Church plant in Red Bank, New Jersey. We don't know how Jeff can actually pastor three congregations and do everything that he does, but we're glad to have you on the show, Jeff. <laughs> I was just about to say I, I can't do those all at one, one and the same time. Uh, right. The, the, the Red Bank uh, Bible study, of course, is a Monday night venture at this point. But on Sundays, uh, morning and evening, uh, I'm in the pulpit at Knox OPC in Lansdowne, PA. Jeff, where's uh, Red Bank, New Jersey? What what cities? Uh, what city is it close to? For the Red listeners? Bank would be near um, Asbury Park. Okay. It's right, right off of the. Uh, uh, Garden State Parkway, uh, exit 109. Uh, we meet at the uh, Marriott Courtyard, Red Bank, Lincroft. Okay. Uh, literally, right, you get you pull off, off of exit 109 and you'll see the uh, motel, I guess, uh, right there. Uh, meet there every Monday night, 7 p.m. Uh, in one of the, uh, the uh, meeting rooms of so the motel. Yeah, we obviously love to promote church plants, and I love helping promote church plants since I am a church mm. planner, and so we want to encourage our listeners to spread the word about that and get in touch with Jeff if you have uh, f- family or friends or coworkers that you know living in that those areas that you would direct them to that work um, or to Knox OPC there in Lansdowne, PA. Um, well, this morning we are going to look at another one of Jonathan Edwards' sermons. The title of this sermon is Safety, Fullness, and Sweet Refreshment in Christ. It is based on the text of Isaiah 32.3, which reads, A man shall be as a hiding place from the wind and a covert from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. It was first published, I believe, in Cyrano Edwards' Uh, volume of the works of Jonathan Edwards, volume eight. And then it has also been published in the Hickman edition of the works of Edwards. Um, it is clearly based on a strongly messianic prophecy there in Isaiah 32, three, a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind. And there is a strong Christocentricity as we'll see this morning, as we go through this sermon together, uh, Jeff, I wanted to ask you if you would open us and just talk to our listeners a little bit about the history, what we know of, uh, when the sermon was preached and what we know about it historically. Sure. Uh, actually we know, uh, very, uh, little about the the, uh, the preaching of the sermon other than uh, it was preached sometime between the fall of 1728 and the winter of 1729. Uh, 
and that's significant in and of itself. Is if you're familiar with Edward's uh, pastoring at the uh, church in Northampton, you'll know that he originally went as the assistant pastor, uh, assisting his grandfather Solomon Stoddard, uh, who had a sixty-plus year, I believe, a sixty-plus year uh, ministry at the church. And it's right in uh, February of seventeen. Uh, 29 that he passes away and Edwards uh, shifts from being assistant pastor to becoming senior pastor and and so this sermon would have been preached at that pivotal time uh, in uh, Edwards and the congregation's life uh, I believe uh, the sermon may have been repreached later on around 1752 uh, uh, to the uh, Indians in Stockbridge. Uh, and so for Edwards to re-preach this meant that he thought it was uh, a worthwhile sermon. Uh, and so that's about what we know in terms of the background, that, that the time period in which the sermon was preached was a significant time period, a significant change occurs in the ministry of Edwards and in the life of the Northampton Church. Yeah, that's very helpful. And... Um... You know, sometimes with Edward's sermons, uh, the history of them is hard to find. I know we dug a little bit to try to find out stuff about this, as Yale didn't really um, give us a whole lot of research on this, and that's one of the difficult things is to really position it. And so we're thankful that we um, can learn what we can to help us as we, we look at this sermon. Dave, would you be willing to open us up and talk a little bit about the structure of this sermon and the flow and just give us an overview? Sure, I'd be happy to. It's uh, an example of Puritan plain style preaching, which so many of these sermons clearly reflect that, that uh, tripartite structure of exposition, doctrinal section, followed by what is often called application, improvement, or use. Uh, in this particular edition, it happens to be called Reflections, which is likely an editorial um, you know, uh, edition there. But you have that, that tripartite, Puritan, plain-style approach. And Edward says at the beginning that what he wants to do in the body of the sermon is to unpack three propositions that explain the text, Isaiah 32, 2. And those three uh, propositions are there is in Christ Jesus abundant foundation of peace and safety for those who are in fear and danger. Two, There is in Christ provision for the satisfaction and full contentment of the needy and thirsty soul. Three, there are quiet rest and sweet refreshment in Christ Jesus for him who is weary. And the way he goes about that from the very outset, uh, explicating those, those three propositions, as you mentioned earlier, Nick, it's very Christocentric. But he gets at the Christocentricity via the covenant of redemption. You, you see obvious covenant of redemption theme here. For instance, on one of his first points, it is Christ's professional business. It's an interesting phrase there. It is his or Christ's professional business, the work in which he engaged before the foundation of the world. There's your redemption, covenant of redemption language. It is what he always had in his thoughts and intentions. He undertook from everlasting to be the refuge of those that are afraid of God's wrath. And then, in the context of the covenant of redemption, he unpacks that good Christology, focusing on the mediatorial work of Christ, showing that Christ is more than sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God on behalf of sinners. He is more than 
fitted. You have that language, that Edwardsian fittedness or fitness theme that is coming out here. And then what he does is once he shows that Christ is the mediator of the covenant of redemption, he's more than sufficient for the task, more than fit for the task to satisfy the wrath of God against sinners. He urges in throughout the sermon sinners to fly to this sufficient Christ, flee to, fly to this mediator of, uh, of the covenant. And, you know, Jeff, you had mentioned that, that this sermon, you know, early uh, 29, sometime in 29, maybe late 28 uh, or 29, we see this sermon being preached based on what we know historically. Many sermons around this time uh, period in Edwards' ministry, as, as our listeners probably uh, will know, and as we've talked about before, they are they're very doctrinal. You know, some some of the the sermons as you move into the late thirties throughout the forties are so focused on religious experience, interacting with uh, revival realities and the awakening. Some of these early sermons very doctrinally rich, uh, explicating the doctrines of grace, things like regeneration and the satisfaction of Christ, et cetera, and uh, covenant theology. And that's that's what he's doing here in this sermon. In those three propositions, you notice there's the objective and the subjective, right? The first one is the foundation for peace and safety. That That's the work that Christ has done uh, for us, right? And then you have the second and third proposition. So you move from Christ Jesus uh, is uh, in him as the abundant foundation, and then you have uh, in Christ provision for satisfaction and full contentment, and then uh, quiet rest and sweet refreshment for the weary. So you've got that, as you've already said, the foundation is actually in the covenant of redemption. So he's, he's, he's got a balance here that I find very, very helpful between what uh, the Father, Son, and Spirit entered into in terms of the covenant of redemption to, to plan for uh, the work of salvation. And then uh, he reminds us that, that that plan results in our finding our satisfaction and rest in Christ. Now, is it possible to say the satisfaction is, is a satisfaction that we would have, uh, say, um, apart from the consideration of sin, and then the, the rest and refreshment is a satisfaction we have uh, in light of sin? I don't know if that's a, maybe going too far afield. Well, I, I, I'm not sure how to answer that, but I know your point about <laughs> The objective and the subjective is outstanding, and and that's a great observation about how Edwards really does um, theologically structure this this exposition. Um, well, you know, for Edwards, you know, th- there is throughout his writings, as y'all know, and we've talked about this a little bit before, um, the idea of of pleasure, of happiness, of of the soul seeking its its happiness, and ultimately that being found in Christ. There is in Edwards, uh, re- repeated emphasis on Jesus as the soul's satisfaction. And in fact, he says in Religious Affections that, that the Lord is the cream of all the believer's pleasures, which is a beautiful, beautiful statement. And he, you know, he speaks elsewhere of, of Jesus being like, uh, you know, a, a river that uh, the soul, you know, we, you know, when, when he says somewhere else, I'm trying to think where this is. You know, uh, the soul, when the soul first looks upon Christ, it, it is ravished, and it never grows weary of him. And really, in, in, in many ways, of course, uh, 
Edwards is building on the insights of St. Augustine, right, who in the confession says, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in you. And he's, of course, the, Augustine at that point is, is praying to the Lord. It's a, it's, it truly is a confession of God's uh, purpose in, in creating us. And, 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 that, uh, and what Edwards reminds us is that the Son of God, uh, as part of the triune Godhead, was involved in that whole process of creation and redemption. And so the Son, the Son who made us, uh, is the the source of satisfaction and refreshment. And, and Augustine will go on elsewhere and talk about uh, sin, in, in sin being, among other things, a disordered love, and therefore true, the true source of our satisfaction uh, and the true object of our love ought to be God as uh, revealed to us uh, in the in the person of the Son. Yeah, and I think also you find in this sermon a strong similarity to what you find later in in someone like Thomas Chalmers, and we've talked about his sermon, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection, and you see how John Piper has brought this out probably really gleaning a lot of it from Edwards about how the soul craves happiness and the soul needs to be satisfied and that individuals are always desiring and they're always seeking what is good and they're seeking happiness, though they seek it in created things and pervert it and seek for right. lesser things. And Edwards will always contrast, you know, and Jeremiah too, that verse, my people have committed two great evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water. They've hewn out cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And so... You know, here's Jesus, and he's saying, I'll be an infinite fountain of water for your soul. I am, you know, the source of rivers of living water. And um, this sermon particularly brings that out, though you find that strewn all over in Edward's teaching and preaching. Um, there's a strong emphasis, and, and obviously so, because Isaiah 32.3 is really talking about the benefits of Christ to those that are— um, in, in a biblical theological analogy in the wilderness. And that's really an interesting development in the sermon. If you go through and you look for that wilderness theme, how Edwards even introduces it there at the very beginning when he says, um, he shall be like rivers of water in a dry place. Edward says, this is an allusion to the deserts of Arabia, which was exceedingly hot and dry country. One may travel there for days, see no sign of a river, a brook, a spring, nothing but dry and parched wilderness. So the travelers are ready to be consumed with thirst as the children of Israel were when they were in the wilderness, when they were faint. And then he says, Christ was typified by the river of water that issued out of the rock for the children of Israel in this desert. He is compared to a river because there is such a plenty and fullness in him. So I, as you guys know, I'm, I'm very fascinated by the biblical theology of Edwards. And, and while obviously you could take this further and contrast why is the wilderness theme so prevalent in the prophets, it's because Eden was turned into the wilderness and the first Adam turned the garden into a dry, barren place. And he doesn't do that in that sermon. He clearly is, though, um, setting the, the language in that analogy, typical context of Israel in the wilderness now. Men and women are in this wilderness of this world, and he'll even talk about the soul that is not in Christ is like a dry, parched soul, spiritually barren. Um, he'll he'll develop that out and talk about, um, and even when he comes to the call to come to Christ, he says, if anyone is in the wilderness, let him come to the blessed Jesus, 
who was and a shot over Great Rock. How pastoral he, he, he is in the latter part of his sermon, you know, really crying out to people to realize their weariness and their dryness and how they are buffeted. I mean, he, he, you're right. He uses that, that imagery, that wilderness imagery early on. And he comes back to it and takes advantage of it and applies it, calls them to recognize, you know, their, their need. And, and one of the things that I think about is we were talking about, uh, you know, the idea of Christ being a river and, and him meeting our needs and taking pleasure in him and all that, that has been popularized, for instance, by Piper. And, and you know, you hear Keller and, and a host of preachers in reform circles who, who make much of, you know, the idolatry of the heart and forsaking our idols, not not uh, substituting idols for Christ and that sort of thing. And, and you know, everybody loves to quote uh, Calvin, who spoke of us being idolorum fabricum, you know, we're all idol fabricators, etc. And all that is true, and, I, and we're all thankful for that kind of preaching being out there, warning us against heart idolatry. But what I love about what Edwards is doing here is he's not just saying Christ is the solution to your idolatry. Your idolatry will leave you barren and thirsty and bankrupt. Christ is the river. He's the solution. He shows how and why Christ is that by explicating the covenant of redemption and Christ's mediatorial atoning work, even grounding it ultimately in the resurrection. You know, that the resurrection, and, and of course here he's, he's you know, uh, pulling in, I don't think he, he specifically quotes this, but, but Paul in Romans 4.10, you know, Jesus being delivered up for our transgressions, raised for our justification, that the resurrection was God's testimony, his seal of approval on Christ's work on our behalf. So there's this, this wonderful covenantal, Christological, soteriological basis for being able to say Christ is a river. Yeah, that's that's outstanding. I, you know, I also found it interesting how um, easily Edwards steps into the Christology of the sermon. Uh, just taking the context of Isaiah, the latter part of 31 and then the beginning of 32, and and he just jumps in and says that Jesus is the King who would reign in righteousness. He's the king that was prophesied in the Old Testament. And then he says the whole Bible was about Christ and his sufferings, quoting First Peter 1, 11 and 12. And I remember reading this verse as a new Christian and thinking, that's amazing. A man shall be as a hiding place from a storm. How is that possible unless he's the God-man? And Edwards will develop all that. What I find to be very interesting is Edwards takes his readers into the explicatory part of the sermon is that as he develops the idea of the benefits of Christ for his people and the peace and the safety that Jesus is to his people and the source of refreshment, Edwards will actually contrast the different kinds of dangers and fears that men are subject to. I thought this was very interesting that he doesn't just rush to the spiritual. He actually says there are two kinds of dangers. There's temporal and there's eternal. Uh, Edwards says men are frequently in distress from fear of temporal evils. We live in an evil world. We're liable to abundance of sorrows and calamities. A great part of our life is spent in sorrowing for present or past evils and fearing those that are future. And then Edward says, what poor distressed creatures are we when God is pleased to send his judgments among us? And then he says, as the mountains are round about Jerusalem, so Christ is round about those that fear him. And so he doesn't just rush to the spiritual soul refreshment uh, rest from personal sin, but he actually talks about how Christ is also a hiding place in the midst of temporal evil and danger. I thought that was pretty interesting. He'll be probably, uh, and this is just a guess, I mean, more sensitive at being in an agricultural 
pre-industrial context, he might be more sensitive to those uh, uh, temporal uh, problems that people face. Maybe we're protected may, I'm in the Western um, context, the American context. Uh, some of the uh, the hardships of life uh, we're sometimes protected from. And he, being in a pre-industrial age, uh, uh, would be more sensitive. Not maybe that he's aware that he's more sensitive, but we're looking at it and seeing that, right? right. That, that uh, he's he's going to be he's going to realize that just as in the Old Testament, uh, we don't divorce the spiritual from the physical, or the spiritual from the tem- eternal from the temporal. Uh, Ed- Edwards is is not going to divorce those either. Yeah, they didn't have that luxury. And I, and I wondered, right. too, if along with that, Jeff, and this is, I mean, it's, I guess, speculation on my part, but I think it might be grounded, is it not only was there the pre-industrial hardships of life, uh, you know, sort of pre-modern technology hardships of life, and then in, in an agrarian society, et cetera, but I'm sure news from the frontier filtered into Northampton of great dangers. And yes, that's right. Peril right. attacks that were happening mm-hmm. um you know, between, say, settlers and Native Americans out on the frontier. Right. But, you know, you that, see, we th- I think of America that yeah. now, and <laughs> that's hardly an issue in, in, in upstate New York and New England, right? Right. Uh, but back in, back in the day when Edwards was, a, was pastor and he was preaching, uh, you have on the horizon the French and Indian War. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we have the, and that, of course, is a reflection of the of the dispute between England and France, uh, and and so those, and we all are those who are familiar with Edward's biography knows that there was a point uh, in his time, I think, in Stockbridge, where they actually fortified the town, uh, and actually he had to quarter soldiers, if I remember correctly. Yeah, read the uh, opening uh, chapters of Marsden's biography. It is rather unsettling as he recounts those events. Yeah. And um, it's interesting too, because a lot of modern day reformed uh, theologians tend to downplay physical protection. And I think in overreaction to the health, wealth, prosperity gospel, obviously we should react strongly to that perversion of the gospel. But sometimes I think, you know, focusing on the, the the expectation ought to be suffering, the expectation ought to be difficulty and trials, and we would all agree with that. At the same time, that is not the exclusive way that God deals with us. And you even see with the apostles, Paul's let down out of a basket, and he escapes mm-hmm. for his life. Peter is broken free from prison. Now, James is is killed by Herod, but Peter is delivered. And so God still delivers his people, still protects his people. So often, until God's done with a man, God's not going to let that man be hurt in a way that um, he won't be able to finish the ministry to which God has called him, or any believer for that matter. And so I think that sometimes we need to be careful not to overreact to the fact that Christ is like the mountains around Jerusalem to his people, and he sends his angels to protect us, and he guards right. us. And um, and while we know that the physical is not the ultimate, and I think that's evident from Edward's sermon because he only spends one short paragraph there at the beginning of the um, explicatory section in saying that, and then the rest is the spiritual dangers to which we're in danger, and he'll develop that it's the fear and the danger of God's wrath. Really, the first, the first thing. Um, 
Fascinating how Edwards weaves conscience into this sermon. He'll talk about conscience as a gnawing worm that's always eating away and and the fears of a terrified conscience and the fearful expectations of the dire fruits of sin, the resentments of an angry God. These, he says, are infinitely the most dreadful. And so he really does hone in then on what is the biggest need a person has, and that is that is freedom from the guilt of our sin, freedom from the terrors of our sin and, and the fearful expectation of what we deserve by nature. Yeah, I think the Puritans as a whole, if you read much in the Puritans, you will realize they have a very pastoral theological approach to the conscience. It's it's much more prominent in their thinking and their pastoral concerns, I think, than, than ours. I, I think we have perhaps found ways of, of ignoring the conscience and making little of it, but not, not the Puritans. And so Edwards standing in that, that tradition, that train, uh, is, is being true to form as, as a Puritan here. Yeah, now I, I noticed, uh, if we can move on here just a little to moving, uh, I had noted earlier that Edwards touches on notes that, that sound like uh, – uh, that he's been drinking at the well of St. Augustine. And actually on page uh, 932 uh, of uh, the Hickman edition, uh, we find some comments, if I can just read these. Uh, first, the soul of every man necessarily craves happiness. This is an universal appetite of human nature that is alike in the good and the bad. It is as universal as the very essence of the soul because it necessarily and immediately flows from that essence and then jumps down. There is no rational being, nor can there be any, without a love and desire of happiness. It is impossible that there should be any creature made that should love misery or not have happiness, since it implies a manifest contradiction. For the very notion of misery is to be in a state that nature abhors, and the notion of happiness is to be in such a state as is the most agreeable to nature. And then he says, therefore, this craving of happiness must be insuperable, and what never can be changed, it can never be overcome and in any way abated. Young and old love happiness uh, alike, and good and bad, wise and unwise, though there is a great variety as to men's ideas of happiness. Some think it is to be found in one thing, and some in another. Yet, as to the desire of happiness in general, there is no variety. There are particular appetites that may be restrained and kept under and conquered. But this general appetite for happiness never can be. So you see, there there is the notion of uh and we find that this is a biblical notion. You notice that, you remember when Jesus said, uh, told the parable uh, or the story of the person who cleaned out, got rid of the demon, cleaned house, and then the demon came back and brought his friends? Right. Uh, that, the, 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 the whole point, and it, it's similar to what Edwards is talking about here, uh, it's not, you, the, the, Christian, the goal of the Christian life is not to get rid of, of desire it's to properly orient the desire that's right and and so um, what the the point being is that um, there's the putting off of the old man and the putting on of the new man right you can't simply put off the old man and leave it there okay it, you have to put on the new man 
In other words, the uh, and, and I may be getting people lost here, but the the idea is you you don't replace something with nothing. In other words, you can't get rid of simply say stop loving sin. Right. Mm. You have to replace that with love righteousness. And God doesn't want you to be miserable. God wants you to be happy. God wants those desires to be satisfied properly, right? Well, what is the first question of the shorter catechism, right? What is the chief end of man? Man's chief end is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Right, right. Right. Uh, No, I don't I don't know that those, you know, we could get into a discussion about whether those are two different things. Uh, I suspect that Edwards uh, would say we enjoy God in the glorifying of him. Right. And that's really what he's getting at here. It's is that we all men, by definition, seek happiness. The question is, where is that going to be found? Right. The unbeliever is going to give one answer. The Christian is going to give another. Hey, y'all there? Yeah. And we say it's in Christ. We say that Christ is the covert. Christ is the man who will provide shelter from a dry and weary land or a shelter from the storm. Uh, You know, Jesus is the river. Right. 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 So so much of this sermon, too, as you've already noted, Jeff and Dave, you've pointed out, is such a strong emphasis on the certainty that Jesus has in himself everything that we need, that he is in himself and through his work of redemption, everything that we need. Um, and I love this phrase, and Dave, you've, you and I have talked about the, how wonderful this phraseology is that Edward Jesus, Christ has undertaken to save all such from what they fear if they come to him. It is his professional business. <laughs> I love that, that Jesus, Jesus is a businessman, and that business is redemption. He says the work in which he engaged before the foundation of the world, it's what he always had in his thoughts and intentions. He undertook it from everlasting to be the refuge of those who are afraid of God's wrath. His wisdom is such that he would never undertake a work for which he is not sufficient. I have a, a mentor who will always say, you know, the saddest thing about unbelievers getting mad about Jesus being the exclusive Savior is that they would never get mad that they're not qualified to be a neurologist. They understand. Only someone who's qualified mm-hmm. can be a neurologist. <laughs> only someone and, – and they don't get mad that they're not qualified. Jesus is the only one qualified to be the Redeemer. <laughs> so yeah, and, we should love he, that. Yeah, I, I love it. And I love there, – there's a, there's a trajectory here to what Edwards is doing. It is his professional business. Uh, he he grounds the qualification of Christ. Um, he develops the qualification of Christ to be that uh, along these lines. He grounds it in the covenant of redemption. You know, before the foundation of the world, he agreed to do this. And he goes on to say, uh, you know, there, there needs be no fear or jealousy, whether the Father will approve of this undertaking of Christ Jesus, whether he will accept of him as a surety, or whether he will be willing that his wrath should be poured upon his own dear son instead of us miserable sinners. You see, in other words, Christ was qualified. We, we not. We couldn't bear that. For there was an agreement with him concerning it before the world was. It was a thing much upon God's heart that his son, Jesus Christ, should undertake this work. And it was the Father that sent him into the world. It is as much the act of God the Father as it is of the Son. Therefore, when Christ was near the time of his death, he tells the Father that he had finished the work that he gave him to do. Then he goes on to speak of Christ being fitted for that work. And then a little bit later, how 
Jesus is more than sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God, but then he, he culminates that worthiness of Christ being this mediator, again, as I said earlier, by grounding it in the resurrection. That was the Father's declaration. Right. And, you know, again, though he doesn't quote this, Romans 4.25, delivered up for our transgressions, raised for our justification. And so that qualification of Christ began before the foundation of the world in the covenant of redemption, plays out in history by his being the fit atoning sacrifice, and then declared approved by, by the resurrection. Right. Well, and there's this strong logical theological development in the sermon that's so typical in Edward's sermons. I think arguably it's what makes him great is that he takes the scriptures and shows how everything's interconnected and how Jesus answers um, the greatest spiritual problems and, and meets the greatest spiritual needs in his people and he upholds God's law and he propitiates God's wrath and he provides, you know, this part of the safety is that God's law is vindicated and yet the wrath is averted and that in Jesus, in his death and resurrection, we have this sure and secure foundation so that there is a danger, I think, of us focusing too much on the subjective, if I can say that, that without having that solid found, uh, foundational objective truth of Jesus Christ as Redeemer. And Edwards really presses that home. Um, I, every time I read a sermon like this and he does these things, it always takes me back to his uh, first section in The Wisdom of God Displayed to, an, to the Angels where he talks about why the second person of the Godhead is the only fit Redeemer and how he is infinitely loved of his Father and he is uh, infinitely holy and he is you know, fit in every way in his person to be the Redeemer. And in a sense, that's, that's what you have Edwards doing in this sermon, is taking the infinite majesties and glories and truths of who Jesus is and what he does, and then saying, this is why you can come to him, and right. this is why you can rest in him. There's a, if we may move to the reflection section, there's a quote I'd like to, to read here. It's so well done. I don't know that it needs comment, but it's. It, let me read this uh, for our listeners. And this is from the reflection section, which would be the uh, application, use, or improvement in most other sermons. Here on page 936 uh, of the uh, volume 2 of the Hickman edition, in the reflection section, this is what Edward says. Again, he's wrapping up the sermon. Uh, we are by our own sin against God plunged into all sorts of evil, and God has uh, left us helpless in no calamity. We, by our sin, have exposed ourselves to wrath, to a vindictive justice. But God has done very great things that we might be saved from that wrath. He has been at infinite cost that the law might be answered without our suffering. We, by our sins, have exposed ourselves to terror of conscience in expectation of the dreadful storm of God's wrath. But God has provided for us a hiding place from the storm. He bids us enter into his chambers and hide ourselves from indignation. We, by sin, have made ourselves poor, needy creatures. But God has provided for us gold tried in the fire. We by sin have made ourselves naked, and when he passed by, he took notice of our want and has provided us white raiment that we may be clothed. We have made ourselves blind, and God in mercy to us has provided 
eye salve that we may see. We have deprived ourselves of all spiritual food. We are like the prodigal son that perished with hunger and would gladly have filled his belly with husks. God has taken notice of this, our condition, and has provided for us a feast of fat things and has sent forth his servants to invite the poor, the maimed, the halt, and the blind. We, by sin, have brought ourselves into a dry and thirsty wilderness. But God was merciful and took notice of our condition and has provided for us rivers of water, water out of the rock. We, by sin, have brought upon ourselves a miserable slavery and bondage. God has made provision for our liberty. We have exposed ourselves to weariness. God has provided a resting place for us. We, by sin, have exposed ourselves to many outward troubles and afflictions. God has pitied us and in Christ has provided true comfort for us. We have exposed ourselves to our grand enemy, even Satan, to be tempted and buffeted by him. God has pitied and has provided for us a Savior and Captain of Salvation, who has overcome Satan and is able to deliver us. Thus God has in Christ provided sufficiently for our help in all kinds of evils. What a powerful, I mean, there, there is uh, that wonderful, what, what struck me was the we by our sin have and God has through right. the repetition throughout that passage. But think of all the biblical illusions. Some of them are actually stated, you know, the prodigal son. Uh, but there are clear allusions to different passages of God's Word in, in that closing uh, segment. And Edwards is really waxing Pauline here, isn't he? You know, there's the number of times the phrase, but God, but God, but God, uh, as Paul did in Ephesians 2 4. Mm. Yeah, that's a great observation. That strong contrast, the complete opposite of what we deserve, God does. I remember Edward said somewhere, and I, I've not been able to find this quote, but I know I read it in him, that the glory of the gospel is that God meets eternal death with eternal life, the exact opposite thing that we deserve, which is just mind-blowing if you think about it. We deserve eternal death, and he could give us temporal life, right? He could, he could have somehow arranged that instead of giving us eternal death, he just gave us more temporal life, but he meets it with eternal life. And you kind of have that, like you said, Dave, with the but God contrast of Ephesians 2, 4. And Jeff, as you pointed out, the the stark um, contrast to what we have done by our sin and what he has done in his grace. And then he develops that in the second reflection. And I, I really love this. He says, we should admire the love of Christ to men. Mm. That he has thus given himself to be the remedy for all their evil. Think about that. There's some. Uh, there's some of the strong applicatory uh, reform guys that that don't like the. Well, you know, we should glory in the love of Jesus, and we that that's the only application. That's a huge application. We should admire the love of Christ to men. Christ mm. has given himself to us mm. to be all that we need. We want clothing, and Christ does not only give us clothing, but he gives us himself to be clothing that we might put him on, Edward says. Um, we want food. Christ has given himself to be our food. We need habitation. We have by sin turned ourselves out of house and home. Christ has given himself to be the habitation of his people. Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Christ has given himself to his people to be all things to them that they need and all things that make for their happiness. Um, and he ends the sermon. I love this last line. Here is love for us to admire, for us to praise, 
and for us to rejoice him with joy that is full of glory forever. Could you could you think of a better way to end a sermon than that? Oh, I love no, that, that, the, the language oh. of admiring. He begins and ends that section with the, the language, really, it, it's affectional language, the language of admiring. And think about this. I mean, for us as ministers, for us uh, as those who would, who would teach and, and preach, to admire the love of Christ to others. And think about, I just make an application of this. I'm thinking about my, my own heart. I'm, I'm kind of an Apple fanboy, right? You know, anything that Apple comes out with, I think I got to have it. It's the greatest thing in the world. It takes very little of me to admire Apple products to others, right? And to want them to know how great I think a MacBook Pro is. You know what I mean? It just comes very naturally to admire those things to others. How inf- I mean, how much more to admire the love of Christ. Amen. Amen. To admire the love of Christ in the hearing of others. Jeff, any final thoughts on this sermon as we walk out of this? Well, again, we find, as David has already uh, alluded to, we find Edward's commitment to both uh, the, under, the integration uh, of the inner intellect and the will, uh, to know Christ and to love him. Go together. You can't have one without the other. They go together. Uh, and that's important. You know Christ and you admire him. You know about his love. You admire his work of redemption. You admire his love for the fallen human race. Mm. Amen. Well, I would be remiss if I didn't encourage our uh, listeners to get a hold of a copy of this. You can find this online at www.biblebb.com. Um, safety, fullness, and sweet refreshment in Christ. You can just Google that title with Jonathan Edwards and it'll come up as one of the first searches. You can also find it on, uh, the WJE online, Jonathan Edwards Center at Yale University. It is up there. It's in the Hickman edition. If you don't have that, that would be, um, worthwhile getting a hold of a hard copy of the works of Jonathan Edwards. Um, but this is really a rewarding sermon spiritually. Uh, for any believer to read. It's it's a very encouraging, edifying, and um, and challenging sermon, challenging us to, to go to the Lord Jesus Christ and to rejoice in Him. We're, we're so thankful that you all have tuned in. You can find Dave online if you want to read more of his writings. He's at teachinglikerain.wordpress.com. And uh, you can also listen to some of his sermons over there at Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee. You can find Jeff, as many of our listeners will know, at feedingonchrist.com, also on various uh, podcasts and blogs at reformedforum.org. And you can listen to some of his sermons at calvary-amwell.org, Calvary OPC in Ringo's, New Jersey. Again, we are so thankful that you have taken the time to listen to this show. We hope that you'll tune in again for another episode of East of Eden, the Biblical and Systematic Theology of Jonathan Edwards.